Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Reading from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. Reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And somebody have it in their pew Bible. Can you tell me what page it is? 902. 902? Page 992 in your pew Bibles. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his son in the gospel. Timothy, who is a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And Paul writes to Timothy, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen of angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Father, this is Your Word that was divinely breathed into writing for our admonition. And I ask You today that Your Word we know is already anointed, anoint our hearts to receive, our ears to hear what thus saith the Lord this morning. Edify us, Lord, strengthen us today, sanctify us through Your Word, and Lord, we will in turn give You glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I spend a lot of time in study uh, as well as studying the scripture I study the principles and the rules of interpreting the scripture it's something that preachers have to do that we all should understand how we rightly divide rightly understand scripture we have to read it correctly in order to understand it correctly and when we do this we often talk about the genre of the text. What type of text are we reading? Because the Bible has multiple genres. There is poetry. There are stories. There are just passages that teach something. Uh, at least one-third of the Bible, in one sense or another, is poetry. Uh, and, and we all do this. We all read everything with that lens, with you, I know we don't, most of us probably don't physically read a newspaper as much as we used to, but if you were to pick up a newspaper, if you go to the obituaries, uh, you, that is a genre in that newspaper. It's a type of writing. You were to read that differently than you were to read the funnies. Now, I grew up uh, and my grandmother, great-grandmother, would get the paper every day, and especially on Sundays, they had the Sunday funnies, and those were in color. There was a whole section of the comic strips and not having internet or, or phones or anything like that, uh, limited media, that was something that you look forward to, reading the Sunday funnies. 
And so you would go there with an expectation to laugh, to find, so you would read that differently than you would the obituaries. A great case study in this is a few years ago at a conference of the American Association of Christian Counselors when the group thought they were going to hear a Christian comedian come in. They were geared, their mindset was geared towards that. And this is on YouTube, you can watch it and it's, it's almost disturbing to watch because that's not who came in to speak to them. The man that came in to speak was a preacher and one of the most serious preachers that you've ever heard. I've never heard him make anyone laugh. Uh, and he walked in, and as he began to say some very serious things about God, the, the whole place was just erupting in laughter. And the reason you should watch it rather than just listen to it is because he has to step back, and the look on his face is he's trying to figure out after 50 years of preaching, this has never happened, why are these people laughing at me? Mm. And he goes on for about seven or eight minutes and stops and says, you are a very unusual group of people. I've, uh, <laughs> he, do, he doesn't know how to, because he doesn't know what has happened. He doesn't know that they're anticipating and, you know, he, he's trying to get them to stop laughing. I'm saying some very serious things about God. But the point is that in their minds, they were preconditioned for somebody. They were laughing at things, a thousand people laughing at something that wasn't funny at all. It was, it was a group mentality that, hey, this must be funny because he's a comedian, when in fact they had the schedule mixed up. And this is what happens when we go to Scripture. We need to read it correctly. We need to understand what we are reading. Verse 16 that Paul is writing, it's not his words, and this is why I say this. We need to understand what type of text this is. Uh, this is a Already in first century Christianity, they had developed these creeds or these statements of confession. This doesn't just happen throughout church history. This is already happening in the, in the New Testament in Paul's time. Verse 16 is actually a poem or more likely a hymn or a song that Paul is simply quoting. And more specifically, it's probably a portion of a song that the people of God sang already in the first century church. This verse 16, that He was manifested in the flesh. So think about a group of people gathering together like this. And New Testament churches were rarely anywhere any larger than what we have here this morning. This is how people met, usually in their homes. And they would, they would sing, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen of angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we see that already early on in Christianity, the songs that they sang were very Christ-centered. They exalted Jesus and they talked about His identity, who He was and who He is. And we do this today. We sing great songs that stir the faith and exalt Jesus Christ. I think of the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, just a beautiful, incredible song that says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. A song that has endured through the ages in Christianity, and rightfully so, because it lifts up who Jesus Christ is. It exalts Him. And this is what they were doing already in the first century church. We are in good company to do this. We are right to sing songs that exalt Jesus, because this is what they were doing. And Paul, 
is simply writing to Timothy and quoting the words of a song in Scripture. Great hymns and great songs communicate truth. They communicate doctrine. They exalt Christ through poetic language that is set to beautiful music. And when that is accomplished, the results are breathtaking. Great is the mystery of godliness. It is no small thing to come to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. It is a magnificent revelation that we should not take lightly. If you simply understand who Jesus is and have that belief and that faith in Him that was mentioned earlier and that we've been talking as we walk through the book of John, I've been trying to connect over and over because John connects it over and over. The connection between belief and all the metaphors that Jesus uses for belief and eternal life. I mean, John and Jesus are trying to get us to see real clear, like Jesus is saying it over and over, chapter after chapter, in different ways, different metaphors. You need to believe on me because this is key to having eternal life. When Paul refers to the mystery of godliness, it is somewhat a mysterious phrase, unless we look at how Paul talks about mystery in his other writings. We need to connect all of Paul's thinking to see what he means about the mystery. The idea of mystery is prevalent in his letter to the Ephesians, where Paul describes God's redemptive purposes that were hidden through the ages, but they are now revealed in Jesus Christ. This is the essence of what Paul means by mystery. It has been a mystery, it's been hidden through the ages, and now all of that mystery throughout the ages, throughout all the Old Testament, is now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So the idea of mystery itself is very Christ-centered. Once again, Paul in his letter to the Colossians writes, Colossians 1, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And he's going to define what the mystery is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the mystery that is revealed, is the person of Jesus Christ that comes along, that does the finished work on Calvary, that secures our salvation, the core of the gospel. And then he says, and the mystery is this, that Christ is now in you. He dwells in you through the power of His Holy Spirit, and that is the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In this verse... In 1 Timothy, when Paul refers to the mystery of godliness, he once again is referring to the revelation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, I would never say that we should elevate one verse of Scripture over another in the Bible. In fact, I've spent a great deal of time teaching and arguing against this, that we need to, it is dangerous to do what we call proof texting, taking one verse and plucking it out of its context and making all kinds of ideas when it really never meant that in the first place. That's really dangerous. So I've spent a lot of time arguing that in order to understand Scripture, we need to understand it within its original context. That said, there are some verses and there are some chapters and portions of the Bible that hold a tremendous amount of significance not only for us, but for all Christianity. It's just the natural evolution of how things work. If you read a book and you start highlighting the book, 
I, I've done this where I start highlighting it and I find I'm highlighting so much that I'm losing the point of the highlight. It's like, if you highlight the whole book, you've missed the point of why you're highlighting it. You're supposed to highlight the things that really stick out and that you want to go back and reference. And it, such it is with Scripture. There are just certain portions of Scripture that have evolved in Christianity uh, that have a tremendous amount of significance to us. 1 Timothy 3.16 is one of those verses. It is a summary. It is a creed. It is a statement of faith in the form of a song that reveals to us the glory of who Jesus Christ is. And once again, true to form for the Apostle Paul, we don't have to wonder what the mystery is. He tells us it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this idea of mystery being revealed in Jesus is not exclusive to Paul. It is throughout other portions of the Bible. You find John in the book of the Revelation. I was talking to my wife about this a couple nights ago. It said it's not Revelations, it's Revelation, it's singular. It's not the book of Revelations. It is the book of Revelation, it is the Revelation. And it is a book that is shrouded in mystery. No doubt, there are a lot of things that we read in Revelation that I read and, and just so much symbolism and probably better understood by the people in those days uh, even than, than our day because it is a, again, it's a genre. It is an uh, apocryphal writing, uh, a genre of writing that those people were used to. John was not the first person to write a book like Revelation. There are other books like this in existence. They were not canonized, they're not in Scripture, but it's not the first time that a book that used language like this exists. They existed more than, and we still have those same books, we just don't consider them to be divinely inspired. But that form of writing, those people were used to reading. And if you want to understand the Revelation properly, you have to put yourself in the seat of the reader and say, how would they have understood it? That's the only way to understand the Revelation, just like it's the only way to understand the entire Bible. How would the original recipient have understood it? John wasn't writing things to them and saying, well, you don't really understand this, but 2,000 years from now, there's going to be people that kind of figure this out. No, that would be violating fundamental rules of understanding Scripture. How did the original hearers understand the text? And yet, even then, there is a tremendous amount of mystery. And so, if you want to know what Revelation's about, it's very simple. I can tell you this morning what Revelation is about. It's in Revelation 1, verse 1. It is, John starts the very first words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Done. That's what the book's about. Everything that writes after that has to be viewed through the verse 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is to reveal to us who Jesus Christ is. That is the mystery. So the mystery in Revelation is found in Jesus Christ. Paul does the same thing. There is a mystery. The mystery is revealed in Christ. Paul and John are doing the exact same thing. The Old Testament, what they called the Psalter, was the songbook of Israel. We refer to it as the book of Psalms. We read from it this morning. There are five books in the Psalter. So Psalms has 150 chapters. They are divided into five sections. So there are five main books in the Psalter. And this is what they would sing. These are Psalms. These are hymns. They're songs that are filled with passages like what we read this morning in 1 Tim Timothy 3.16. They're, they're prayers. They're confessions. They're statements of faith about the God of Israel. Now Paul is a Jew. Paul is a well-educated Jew. 
and he is a Jew that follows the Jewish traditions. And while Paul is very clear that the Old Testament law is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He is the, the accumulation, the end of all that happened in the Old Testament. It's about once again revealed in Christ. But even though Paul acknowledges that Christ is the end of the law, Paul does continue in many of his Jewish traditions, and one of them is using songs to convey truth. He does this elsewhere in other books, and he does it here in verse 16. He's using a song to communicate powerful truths about God that are revealed in the Messiah, Christ Jesus. Now, Philip Towner, a great writer, makes an excellent argument, I think he's right, when he says the mystery of godliness forms a connection between the appearing of Christ and Christian living. Mystery on one hand is the once hidden mystery now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and then godliness, how then should we live in light of the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ? The godliness deals with us. What does that mean to me? How then should I live if Christ is revealed? And Paul and the rest of the Bible is never far removed from asking the question, how then shall we live in light of the glory of God that is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? In fact, that little phrase, how should we live in light of Christ, may be representative of the entire New Testament. What does that mean? How does that reflect back to me? How should I live in light that Christ was revealed and now Christ is revealed in me? That is, what are the implications? Like Acts 2, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches in Acts 2 that the Son exalts, is ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Father gives the promise of the Holy Spirit to the Son, and the Son takes it and pours it out upon you, and that is what you're seeing today on the day of Pentecost. This is Acts 2.33, right in there. Paul says those exact words. He makes that connection because he's wanting them to see that later on when he says, this same Jesus that you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. He's saying that that same Jesus is the one that is dwelling inside of you. That this Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ that's dwelling inside of you. That's what you're seeing in Acts 2 being poured out. It is the fullness of who God is inside of us. What does that mean to us? How then shall we live? Christ and us, revelation and ethics. How should we live? We as conservative evangelicals with a long history of understanding or misunderstanding holiness as a code of conduct need to hear and understand this relationship between the mystery of God and what it means to actually live pure and clean and holy in light of who Christ is. The pendulum, and it has been a pendulum, has swung both ways out of control for many generations to try to answer this question. It swings to the left, and you have grace covers it all. Sloppy love, you just live any way you want to live. You do anything you want to do. You drink anything you want to do. You sleep with whoever you want. You can name it and claim it because Jesus wants you to be happy, healthy, and wise. And it makes Jesus the male version of Rainbow Bright. I mean, just this fairy God in the heavens that's just there to give you whatever you please. You just do whatever you want because I do love you and there's grace. And, and that is deadly and that is destructive. So the knee-jerk reaction to that is for the pendulum to swing right. 
And so Jesus saved you, but now we're going to yoke you with this conduct code, and you do this and do this and don't do this and don't do that, and maybe you'll get eternal life if you catch God on a good day. You're never really sure if you're saved. Am I saved? Well, I didn't do so well today. I don't know. And now it's tying my salvation to my works. You're saved by the gospel, but you're kept by something else. And that too is deadly and destructive. There is a center point. There is a balance to be found. If you live your life, not sloppy, but not legalistic, but grateful and thankful that Jesus Christ stood in your place on Calvary and He was your propitiation. I had a lunch with a good friend of mine this week and he said, we were having this conversation about how we can't do away with that word. That word propitiation is so important. We don't use it. Probably nobody here this week used that word in your normal conversation. So, no, you know, it's probably not a word you use on the job, but it is the idea. And again, first century readers would have understood this word. It was a word used in idolatrous settings. The gods, plural, are angry at us. And that's why we're having a drought. So we will offer sacrifices to Him to assuage His anger. So He's not angry at us anymore. Those, will, those offerings will be a propitiation, an offering that takes away the wrath of the gods so that He will give us rain, so that He will take away our curse. Paul hijacks that word from an idolatrous nation and he said, Jesus was the propitiation. In other words, if we talk about God being for us like that's just a given. Like, well, God's for you. Well, God hates sin. This goes back to the core of the gospel. God hates sin. And He's not so crazy about the sinner either. And there are passages in the Psalms that would almost go against this God hates sin but loves the sinner. And there's some verses in Psalms that would say, I don't know about that. I don't know that, like, it's good news that Jesus came. Is it really? If God hates sin and He embodies Himself and walks among us in flesh and He's out to judge sin because every sin is going to be judged, is it good news that He shows up and is a human being to walk among us? That's not so much good news if there's not grace and mercy and if there is not a penalty to be paid for that sin. So what Christ is, like who killed Jesus? Well, according to Paul in Romans 3, 23 through 26, it was God who killed Jesus. Paul says, God put forth Jesus as a propitiation. He puts forth His own Son. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God on the cross. It was R.C. Sproul who said, we talk about the Old Testament being the place where the judgment of God exists, but the greatest judgment of God happens in the New Testament when God pours out His wrath upon Christ. And Christ absorbs my sin into His body. God keeps perfect books. He is the greatest accountant in history. Every sin ever committed will be reconciled either by the judgment of God upon me through eternal damnation or through Jesus Christ on the cross. And then we, our faith, our belief, this is what John's doing, our belief is what moves from this side of the ledger from us upon Jesus Christ and He pays the penalty. It's the core of the gospel. Jesus stood in your place on Calvary and was your propitiation. He was the sacrifice that absorbed the wrath of God for your sin upon His body. My sin, I'm supposed to pay for it and it goes unto the body of Jesus Christ. That's called grace. That's called mercy. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. 
if you live your life understanding the revelation of the mystery that was hidden for centuries to the entire world, but it is now revealed to us as the people of God, we call it the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you live your life under the beautiful weight of God's glory, your ethics, how should we live? Revelation ethics. How should we live? If you live your life under the weight of the glory of God, your ethics will respond in turn and you will live a life of true holiness and you will be godly because of this mystery. Not because somebody said, here are the lines, but because you lived out a response to what Christ has done for us. If you live your life asking the question, where is the line? How close to the edge can I get? Like, where's that line? If you live your life there, I have been convinced that if you ask the question rather than where is the line, how far can I go, rather than asking the question, what pleases God, what honors Him, I think you'll live your life further away from the values and morals and systems of this world if you ask that question than if you just constantly ask, well, where is the line? But rather, what pleases Him, what reflects and honors Him? Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, Paul explains the mystery using the words of a song and a poem he was manifested in the flesh. We've heard it so many times that it doesn't even boggle our minds and stretch our understanding like it should, that God became a man. Not like a man. Don't cheat the humanity of Jesus Christ. Christianity also is often is rich in the doctrine of the deity of Christ, but we are often anemic in the idea of His humanity. He was both God and He was man. Seeing that we have such a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. We have not a high priest which cannot be in touch with the cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was manifest in the flesh, God and man. If you're trying to understand that this morning, you won't fully I'm never going to grasp my, my mind, my finite mind that is thinking that's broken by sin. How can I fully understand who God is in Christ? I'll never fully understand that. But He was manifested in the flesh. The eternal Logos, John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, he's just saying this eternal Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicated is also often, it's the same word that is often translated in the New Testament as justified. And we talk about justification, the, the act of God looking at us and declaring us innocent and righteous because of Christ's work on the cross. Same word but translated differently and, and correctly here uh, is defined as vindicated, meaning to be shown right. Jesus was rejected by so many people the mass of people rejected who He really was. And yet He was vindicated by the work of the Spirit of God upon Jesus is what vindicated Him. So not violate the idea of God being one. Luke 4 says Jesus was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. This is biblical language to say it was the Holy Spirit. And this is all Paul's saying is saying, the Holy Spirit is what vindicated Jesus, who showed Him to be who He really said He was. 
in these verses, the sovereignty of God is at work through Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. It teaches that there is, there is the Christ that is human, and in His humanity He had to be led of the Spirit and be full of the Spirit of God. And it was God's Spirit, the nature of God, that vindicated Jesus by raising Him from the dead. There is no gospel without the resurrection. Proclaimed among the nations. If you're used to hearing these verses uh, in the King James, I read this morning from the ESV, if you're used to hearing it from the King James, the King James would say, preached among the Gentiles. Uh, same, same sentiment, same idea. Preached among the Gentiles, proclaimed among the nations. The gospel message must be preached. It must be proclaimed and heralded that there is good news, good news to everybody that will hear, Jesus has come to save you from your sins. And if you are righteous in Christ, you are part of His eternal kingdom. Just had this, I, th I think it was in our Wednesday evening Bible study that uh, some of us guys get together. I, I think it's there is where it was said. I know we talked about it somewhere this week. Uh, but the fact that the church should never be more complicated than we're here to make much of Jesus and make this all about Jesus and then we're to tell others about Jesus. Like that's it. We're here to be Christ-centered, Bible-saturated, God-exalting, Christ-centered people that go out and make much of who Jesus is. That's the calling, to preach the gospel and make disciples. There are no disciples without the preaching of the gospel. We have a, a personal calling for our area, but there is still a great need for the gospel to be preached around the world. And do we sense this? Do we, do we see the need for the gospel to be preached around the world? And how every individual, regardless of language or race or culture or income level or any kind of socioeconomic uh, category that the world puts people in, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant for the preaching of the gospel. The preaching should be preached to all people. So let there be men and women, young and old, who will resist the gravity of the American dream and join the Apostle Paul by saying, it is my desire to glorify God in my body, whether by life or by death. It doesn't really matter as long as Jesus is made much of. I want to glorify Him in my body. And if that means me dying, Paul said, so be it, as long as Christ is glorified. It doesn't matter as long as my life counts for something more than this temporary world. Let my life make the name of Jesus great in my backyard or on the other side of the world. Then Paul said he was believed on in the world. Jesus Christ was born in this world just like everyone else. I was thinking about this last night, finishing up preparing for this, and I thought, you know, there are people today, there are children being born today this year, around the world who nobody notices. Nobody makes any big deal. It's just another baby being born. But in time, some of those babies that are born this year will go on to do great things. They will be great leaders. They will change the world in remarkable ways. They're, they're babies today that are dependent on people to keep them alive. But someday, they're going to make breakthroughs in uh, the medical field. They're going to make breakthroughs in uh, different areas that, that actually improve life. But nobody today knows that. And so it was with Jesus. There were a few shepherds in a the field. There were some sages from the Far East. The, the wise men 
side note, there were not three of them. We don't know how many there were. Uh, the Bible doesn't say there's three. Uh, it just says they were wise men. Uh, but however many there were, they took notice. Uh, but other than that and some shepherds in a field, the rest of the world had no idea that God was in flesh among them. There was deity in flesh that went to sleep every night in the neighborhood and the neighbors around him didn't know it. They had no, can you imagine going to sleep at night next door to Jesus? You don't even realize who's next door to you. This is how he was. This is how he walked among the earth. He had the ability, the power to show and demonstrate and yet he lived a very humble existence. He was born in obscurity. He did not have pedigree or wealth. His parents were very ordinary people. His father was a, call him a carpenter, don't really picture in a wood shop. It's more akin, it's probably more likely to a, a general contractor, a builder. Uh, probably the, the, the word there has to relate to stone building. He was, uh, he was probably at some kind of mason or a, just a contractor in general. And that's what Jesus would have been raised up in. Like Jesus would have picked up the craft of his father and no doubt. We talk about what happened between the years of 12 and 30. We see him once at 12, and then between 30 when he launches his ministry, I'm like, well, he's, he's probably building with his earthly father. He's living a very normal, ordinary existence. We do know what he's doing in those 18 years of silence. The Bible says that he grew in the wisdom and the stature and the favor of man and God. That's what he was doing. He himself had to prepare for his ministry, and nobody knew it. He just grew up in an ordinary home in a very ordinary town. But 2,000 years later after his birth, millions of people have believed in him as the way, the truth, and the light. And there is no saving faith without believing in the gospel. There is no hearing of the gospel without the preaching of the gospel. And there is no preaching of the gospel without a preacher. We need gospel preachers, people who proclaim the good news of who Jesus is, whether that be behind a pulpit like this, or whether it be in the town square, in the confines of ordinary life, we need people to proclaim the good news. Writer says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Don't underestimate the power of biblical belief. Every person ever born was born an unbeliever. And the God of this world, lowercase g, this is Bible language, Paul calls Satan the God, he's the little g, God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. This is how spiritual warfare works. Satan works by blinding the minds of people. You were born unable to see supernatural light. And if you believe what I am preaching today, it is because God has opened up your eyes to see the beauty of the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There ought to be a thankfulness in our heart to simply say, I see, I believe that. It is no small thing to say, I believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, that is a revelation. I don't just mean mentally. I mean, if there is something in your heart that says, He is my treasure, He is my everything, that is something that God has opened up your understanding and the eyes of your heart to see and be able to believe that there are millions and billions of people who do not have that revelation. 
It is no small thing to know who Jesus is, to have a belief in God or a faith in God. It doesn't always seem to be groundbreaking until we understand that the opposite of that is unbelief, having no faith in God. The Israelites did not enter into the promised land. We don't know why in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the the writer of Hebrews says they did not enter because of unbelief. Very simple. They didn't believe God. Jesus rebuked his disciples in the storm and he said, oh, ye of little faith. It's like, all you have to do is have faith as a child, just childlike faith to say, I don't understand it. I can't make it all work in my head, but I believe. I believe. And the last phrase, and I close with this, and invite Peggy back to the music. Taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. It's interesting to me that by and large the Western Protestant church, and I'm making a big umbrella here. I'm talking, that is a massive umbrella to say the Western Protestant church does not make a whole lot and talk a whole lot about the ascension of Jesus. We talk about the resurrection a lot, but we don't talk about the ascension. And I say Western Protestant because there are some faith traditions, Eastern Orthodox, Greek, Eastern Orthodox, people like that, that the ascension is is really focused on more. But in the Western world, we don't talk about that much. But hear what the writer in Acts says. When they had come together, they asked him, being Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on Him, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight." And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, as we all would, if we saw someone ascend and disappear in a cloud, we would stand there and gaze for a while. We'd probably just trying to take in what we just saw. And as He went, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. He ascended, and this is just another place to promise that He is coming back. Regardless of what, and I have these conversations with a lot of people, it can be easy in terms of biblical prophecy to be at odds with, and there's a lot of viewpoints. I have mine. I have friends who have theirs. We all have these different viewpoints. I have friends that I'm close to that I love that I adamantly disagree with 99% of what they teach. And I love them and think they're good, godly people. We just don't agree on those things. And those are secondary because we agree on the gospel. But the one thing that anybody agrees on that is orthodox Christian, regardless of how you see the time frames happening or what order and all of that, the one thing we can all agree on that I've never spoke to anyone who doesn't agree on is that Jesus Christ is going to come back. There is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is going to come the way that you saw Him go up, the angel said. He's coming back in like manner. Christ is going to return to this earth. All of this nonsense that's going on, and there is a lot of nonsense, 
It's temporary. Everything in this world, Christ is going to come. He's going to establish His kingdom. He is going to return to this earth. And He is going to finish what He started 2,000 years ago. We live in the in-between. We live in the last days. Biblically, the last days are the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. There's language in Scripture that says this. The writer of Hebrews says this. Peter says this. Uh, the last days are marked by the coming, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we live in this in-between. We call it the already not yet. The kingdom is already established, but it's not yet consummated. He started it, but there's still, I mean, Christ's kingdom is here on the earth, and yet there is still war and famine and suffering and brutality and mass injustice. That someday will end on His second coming. The first coming of Jesus, John talks about. The Word was made manifest and dwelt among us. He was born defenseless, a child, an infant, eventually murdered. The second time He comes... Not so much. The same John that wrote of his first coming the second time he comes, he talks about him coming back on that, that white horse. and you know, his, his eyes are like fire. His voice is thundering. His hair is like well, I mean, he This is a powerful force that is coming back the second time. And he will execute vengeance and judgment upon this world. And this song that Paul quotes is celebrating that story. He was taken up into glory. And he is going to return again. The people of God in every generation have and should look for the return of Christ. We should expect Him to come in our generation. They expected Him to come 50 years ago. They've expected Him to come over the centuries. We should anticipate the return of Jesus Christ and live in light that Christ is going to return. When is He coming back? I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows, but we do know at the appointed time Christ will return. And our generation should look and expect for Him to return. And every believer that has ever died in faith will experience a resurrection in their physical bodies. In their physical, they're going to have a physical existence. Say, so what will we do throughout all of eternity? We're going to have a very real physical existence, as real as this is here today. We are going to have a real physical existence throughout all eternity. Paul said our bodies will be like as unto His glorious body. There is a reality more real than the illusions of reality that our culture projects every day. The reality is Christ will return someday. And all of that is celebrated in this scripture. I'm going to pray and ask Sister Peggy just to lead us out in worship. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We have expounded upon your word, your word, not my words, but your eternal word has been here through the power of the Holy Spirit and has illuminated our minds and our hearts. And so we do ask the question, how then shall we live? As we leave this place and we enter back into a world, into the fog of this very secular world that has in large part forgotten who you are and that does not acknowledge you lord we live differently we live in light of the return of jesus christ we live in light of the question how should i live every day ethically morally in response to what you've done for us on the cross and in response to the fact that you are going to return someday we don't understand it but we believe it by faith because your word says it 
So now, Lord, be with us today. Transform us into your image. Keep your hand upon us this week. Lord, we'll exalt you, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name.